just when you were getting ready to sing with that. Were you getting ready to start? Huh? Should I lead you in that? I knew that there was a good hymn out there somewhere that went with this series. And, uh, and our creative team found it. So yeah, we are family. What's it mean to be a part of the family of God, however? That's the question of the morning. So pray with me. Father God, thank you for the fact that you do create family. You create, Father, not just families that we're born into and adopted into and loved into, but Father, thank you that you have adopted us, made us children of God. Thank you that you have redeemed us and sealed us and secured us in your love and your grace. Father, we're humbled to think that none of us did anything to deserve being in the family. But today, Father, now, um, here we are, and we're family, and we pray. I pray that you would take the Word of God and enlighten us further on how to live out and how to grow strong as we connect to the family, as one family in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been around Seacoast more than one or two weeks, you know that we have a deep love for Africa. It's the only continent that gets space on the wall. We're very involved in Congo and Tanzania, but before Congo and Tanzania, my first exposure that began to capture my heart for Africa was Rwanda. You got to go back in time to about uh, 2005 when I made my first trip to Rwanda with our young adults pastor and a team from the Fullerton Church that I was privileged to pastor for 15 years up in Orange County. The church had uh, looked for where can we go in the world where the church has the deepest hurt and need. That was our question. And our research led us to Rwanda. At that time, it was less than 10 years. By 2005, it was 11 years beyond the most horrific genocide in the history, recent history of humanity. If you can imagine the genocide in Rwanda when it went down in um, April of um, 1994, it broke out and in a hundred days, in a hundred days, tribal conflict led to the brutal death of nearly a million people. A million people in a hundred days. Not with mass executions, but neighbor killing neighbor from neighborhood to neighborhood all over the country. I don't have time to go into the whole reason behind that, but when you fast forward, this is a nation that was decimated. A nation overrun with widows and orphans from the genocide. One out of every seven people in Rwanda died in the genocide. One-seventh of the population. Not a family. You can't find a family in Rwanda that wasn't directly impacted with the death of a loved one, a family member, a friend. And often, in the craziness of the genocide that broke out, often killed by someone who they now need to live next to. Some of the worst propagators of it, of course, went to prison. Others fled to Congo and Uganda and across the borders into other countries. But a lot of people that were just kind of caught up in the craziness had to be dealt with and, and figure out, and they had certain penalties to pay, but they were beginning to be released back into the culture. 
In Rwanda today, and even then, in 2005, it became a crime to even identify with one tribal group versus another, Hutu or Tutsi. You couldn't even identify by tribal affiliation any longer. It was illegal. Because they said, we never want to go back there. We are one nation with Rwandans. Can you imagine, however, going to church like we are today and knowing that in the churches of Rwanda, there was a tremendous, tremendous growth spurt? Because when people have gone through crisis like that, painful experience like that, to be honest, the only hope of healing and restoration and reconciliation is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And as grace began to be taught and preached around the country, the churches began to explode in growth. And and they went from people that had a very shallow veneer of Christianity over the culture to people that were going deep in understanding, wow, this grace of God, we all need it. And as we have it, we can give it out to others. And and churches now were beginning to grow and, 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 and find reconciliation, restoration, and growth. But the pastors of those churches who were called to serve Jesus Christ, averaged a 7th to 8th grade education. No formal Bible college or seminary uh, for, for virtually, for very few of them at least. So they were serving Christ, their churches were growing, but they were in desperate need of encouragement and training. One of the organizations that we linked arms with was a group called World Relief. World Relief was putting together various programs for everything from dealing with AIDS and dealing with marital faithfulness and dealing with helping the child survival rate go up because it was one of the worst in the world and clean water because very few people had it. So they were dealing with all of these community needs, but then also doing it, giving the love of Christ, the good news of Christ through the churches in Rwanda. And that's why we wanted to partner with them. My first team looked like this. Here's the picture of Dale. There's Pastor Dale, 2005 version. You think, ah, just a little more hair, but other than that, it looks like the same ugly guy. But anyway, yeah, there I am. The young adult pastor that really grabbed my heart to go is the the guy just to my uh, right in the picture, the big, good-looking guy that has a full head of hair. I still... Uh, envy him but anyway that's jason whalen a good buddy of mine and jason and i led this team to rwanda mainly to encourage the staff of world relief who were exhausted as they worked 24 7 seven days a week trying to carry out all these ministries this picture has special meaning to me Because in the picture, we're not just standing posed. We took another version where we stood and smiled and posed. In this picture, on the last day of the conference, we all have our fists up in the air and our mouths open. And I know what we were saying. We were saying, Duco Mezen Ye! And that's what we said. Duco Mezen Ye! And you have to put the access on the end or else you change the meaning of the word. Okay? So, Duco Mezen Ye! It's a very unique word, even in the Rwandan language, to where even the Rwandan people there needed to have it explained to them. But this word was the theme of our conference. It wasn't thought up by Dale, it was thought up by the director of World Relief in Rwanda as he wanted to set a tone for his staff and for all of these pastors and others. And it's, it's, a, it's a strong word that means this. It means strong together. When you are dukumezen, yeah, you are strong together. 
It's a word that in one word captures the concept of strength in unity, strength in working together, being connected. Duco mazen, yeah, let's, let's learn it. Ready? I know you want to, right? You want to say that? But you got to do it like we did it, right? Fist in the air on the final syllable, okay? Ready? Not, not yet. Keep the fist down, okay? Some of you are already up, all right? Here we go. Right. Duco mazen, yeah. Uh, one more time, better than that. Duco mazen, yeah. There you go. I want you to memorize that word because you're going to see that the secret to dukomezenye being applied to your faith is what we're going to study today. Dan Brosey, the director who thought of using this cool word to set the tone for the conference, went to explain it to this Rwandan audience. Many of them had never even heard of the term. And he said, the best way I can explain it to you uh, is, the, is, is to show you a picture. And he showed them a picture similar to this. This is a snapshot that I took actually with Becky as we walked the redwood groves, this, the uh, coastal redwoods of Henry Cowell State Park outside of Santa Cruz. Anybody been there? Yeah. It's a great little redwood grove that's probably the closest to the coast. And, and we walked through this grove of redwoods and I saw this just towering tree. Now, I didn't climb it to measure it, but let me give you a few stats on coastal redwoods. They are the tallest trees in the world. The tallest known one is 379 feet here in California, 379 feet tall. That's more than 36, 37 stories high if you want to compare it to buildings. They live normally to at least five to 700 years old, but have been known to reach an age over 2,000 years old. One tree weighs an average of 1.6 million pounds. That's a tree. How old do they get? Here's the cross-section of one that was in the park that I took a snapshot of because they've cut it, they've dated the rings on the tree, and they've gone back to see what some of the rings date to. And You see 105 when the Chinese invented paper. And then you see, I saw this one that I focused in on, the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus Christ was when that ring on that tree happened. And the tree was already a big tree. This tree is older than Jesus. So it raises a question. And the question is this. How can a tree, with all of the storms and fires and everything that ravish California, how can a tree be so strong and so old and so tall and yet never fall, never fail and survive even the storms of life that come through the forest. All the insects, all the diseases, all the different things that could take out that tree. You see a tree that's more than 2,000 years old? How do they do it? How do they stand so tall and not blow over in some of the windstorms and Santa Ana's and other things that we get coming off the coast here? How do they do it? And when I researched this, this is what Dan Brosey taught to our group. He said, the secret is you never see them alone. They're always growing in groves, and especially often you'll even see a big mother tree and then a lot of other trees out around it because the secret is this is the only redwood tree. It's different from even the giant sequoias up in Yosemite. This type of redwood tree can propagate and reproduce not only by dropping pine cones, which it can do, but also its root system can sprout new trees off of the roots. 
And when it does that, a lot of times you'll see, uh, even if a tree has died and fallen over, you'll, you'll notice that there'll be a big decayed stump of what looks like a big old tree. And then all of a sudden you look out and, and there'll be a circle of trees all around it, kind of like in this picture. And what you don't see is that those baby trees, which become big trees, actually are interconnected to the root system of the mother tree. So that now you got a baby tree, you got dozens of baby trees, and they're actually interconnected and their roots all go together to the mother tree so they are sucking nutrients, drawing nutrients off of the root system of maybe a thousand-year-old tree. Anyone else want to go, wow? That's stability. That's strength. And that's why one redwood tree on the coastal section is almost never off by themselves. Now, I know because when I was there one time, I decided these trees are so cool, I want to plant one in my backyard. And in a thousand years, just think what my backyard will look like. So how many else, how many of you have bought a little redwood tree in a little plastic tube like I did? Kind of raise your hand. Anyone else want to confess to that? Nobody over here? Okay. Yeah, okay. How many of you have a big redwood tree behind your house now? Raise your hand. Yeah, the thing just died. So, so the, here's the deal. Strength together. Strength together. Roots interconnected is the secret to the survival and the health of those trees. Today, I don't want to talk about trees. I want to talk about faith. I want to talk about how do we build a faith that is strong, stable, a redwood kind of faith that can be so strong that it survives no matter what and actually thrives and grows? How do you have a redwood faith instead of a wimpy faith that the first time a storm, a fire, something else comes through, it's history, okay? How do you build a redwood kind of faith? Listen to the word of God. It's going to describe Dukomazin Ye faith. <clears throat> Pick it up. Verse 14. As a result, where is he saying? As a result of the fact that we are all in a body of Christ, of believers, all of us are diverse in our gifts. That's what you learned last week from Ryan. That Christ ascended back to heaven. He gave gifts and he gave gifted men and women and children to the church. We are a body of diversely gifted people unified by what I taught you two weeks ago that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, etc. Now, we have unity and we have diversity, but then we are combined in the body of Christ. So he says, as a result, here we go. <clears throat> we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness, in deceitful scheming. Pull up right there in verse 14. What he teaches us first is we need to grow up and don't settle for a childish faith. He leads, therefore, don't settle for being children in terms of your spiritual maturity. Don't settle for that. So the challenge he gives is to grow up. His first phrase, no longer be children. That's a faith that is immature. We need a mature versus immature faith. Lesson one. And what do I mean by that? 
It's interesting that he says, don't be children spiritually. And then I listened, and I thought, wait a minute now, Jesus said something different. Maybe some of you are thinking of the same thing I am. What did Jesus say when he had little children around and he put one of them on his knee? And what did he say? He said, unless you become like one of these, unless you have a faith like this child, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus actually likes, he likes childlike faith. Now what is childlike faith? Childlike faith is I love my mommy and daddy. I trust my mommy and daddy. My mommy and daddy don't lie to me. If my daddy said it, it's true. You ever said that when you were a little kid? If, if my daddy said this is the way to do it, that's the way to do it. And on top of that, you can complete this. My daddy can beat up your daddy. Yeah, my daddy's like omnipotent. And when you're a little kid, you know, and all us dads know that's not true, but all, when you're a little kid, that's how kids think of their parents, and especially their dads. My daddy can beat up your daddy and everything he says, and there's this childlike, simple trust and obedience that just believes in daddy. And, and Jesus said, that's the kind of childlike faith that you need, and it's the type of childlike faith you don't want to outgrow that. It's okay to have that childlike faith no matter how spiritually mature you are, never lose that. But this is not talking about childlike faith. It's talking about childish faith. That's different. That was good. You should write that down. I just thought of that. Okay. This is talking about childish faith. And childish faith is an immature faith that even though you have been a Christian or a follower of Jesus for many years, you still aren't growing up. And, you know, because it's okay to have a childish faith when you're a spiritual baby or a newborn or new to the faith. That's okay. But over time, for heaven's sakes, don't stay there because if you do, you're going to be at high risk of not surviving spiritually. So what is a childish faith? He gives three phrases. Number one, it's tossed about by waves. He says it's tossed about by waves. That's a faith that gets upset by storms. Let me just get them up there and then I'll talk about them. It's... Um, well, no, let me slow down. I want to talk about this one. Tossed about by waves. See, when I picture that, I think, okay, so what, what, what's the metaphor? You know, now here at the coast, we understand that when a big storm blows through and the waves are up and churning, and if you picture a boat, you're just being tossed about and you're not in control and, and, and you're out of control and you're at high risk of going under and drowning. That's what he's talking about. But, you know, these are the waves. These are the storms. In California, this could, to come back to my redwoods, these are the firestorms. These are those high Santa Ana winds that kick up, and all of a sudden you've got this blazing fire going through the forest. And uh, how do you survive that? I had to throw, show you one more picture from my trip up to uh, Northern California with Becky last year. Uh, I took a, she took a picture of me standing next to this uh, giant uh, coastal redwood. Now, what, what do you see about that? What's different about that? It's got this huge charred-out scar, but yet the thing is still like two, 300 feet high. Uh, and what that is from is uh, at some point, it could have been 500 years ago, uh, a big firestorm 
came through California, came through that very grove, and, they, and there was so much underbrush all around it that it just scarred the tree, but yet the bark of these trees, unlike other trees where the fire would catch the bark on fire and it would spread up the tree and it would destroy the whole tree. The bark of a redwood tree has a fire-resistant quality to it that you can char it, you can maybe even kill part of it, but it doesn't spread. It's like fire-resistant. It's also got another element, by the way, that's kind of disease-resistant and and insect-resistant. I mean, things of incredible creation by God. But the point is, it did. It was such an intense fire that it charred out the, the and hollowed out part of the tree. But yet the tree kept growing. And over time, you'll find these. They eventually will grow and actually close off that whole cavity and kind of heal the scar. But uh, in this case, you see the evidence of that fire. But yet the tree was healthy. And it kind of caused me to think that like this redwood tree, we need, we need to understand a mature faith that is not decimated whenever life throws us a storm. An immature faith hits a storm and it begins to say, well, does God really love me? I mean, if God lets this happen to me, he must not love me. Or if God doesn't answer this prayer, he must not care. Or he's not listening or he doesn't love me. You know, and, and, and we begin to question the very love of God and we begin to question the existence of God. And, and it's not that we can't have our own struggles with God. In fact, when you go through hard times, it's normal to maybe get a little angry with God and ask him hard questions. We see people in the Bible do that all the time. That's okay. But at the end of the day, the mature faith says, but I look to the cross, I see Jesus, I see the Father giving His Son to die for me, and I don't care what else is going on in my life, that roots my faith in something that's deep and eternal. Instead of just looking at the circumstances of 2015 or whatever is ahead in 2016. A childlike faith doesn't respond like that. A childlike faith... You know, as long as God is blessing and giving you what you want, you love God. And then as soon as God doesn't say yes to something that you need yes to, you swing and you're ticked off at God. And and, and it's very susceptible to being killed. I can illustrate this from our life and Becky and I. You know, how many parents at one time or another, even if you're good parents, uh, I mean, I think every parent has had a time when their kid says, I don't love you. More recently, it happened to us with our grandchildren. Becky took one of our, a couple of our grandchildren to a park to play, and they had a great time at the park. And she has a license plate that says "World's Best World's Best Nani." They call her Nani for Grandma. Okay, World's Best Nani. Check it out. It's out there on the back of her bumper of her car, and she is. She's a world class Nani. And, and she was loving on them, takes them to the park for the day. You know, and at the end of the day, it was time to go home. So she tells our five-year-old granddaughter, hey, it's time to go home. We've got to go. And she says, no. She says, it's not time to go home. I'm not ready to go home. He says, well, I'm sorry. Okay, five more minutes, because nannies always do that. You give her five more minutes. Five more minutes. Now it's time to go. No, I don't want to go. Okay, so finally she has to take her by the arm, drag her to the car. She's putting her in the car seat. She looks at my wife and she says, you are the world's meanest nanny. Meanest nanny in the world. I want to get Becky a new license plate. It says, meanest nanny in the world. 
so that when my grandkids go with us somewhere, they better be warned they're riding with the meanest nanny ever. That was it. Meanest nanny ever. We laugh at that. How many times are you tempted when God doesn't say yes to you and God doesn't show up and God doesn't do what you think He ought to do? Are you tempted to think you're the meanest God ever? You see, an immature childlike faith, one day loves God, next day is ticked off at God. You're up and you're down. You're up and you're down. That's what he means. You are tossed about by the waves of life's circumstances. Paul says, I don't want that for you. You need a mature, not an immature faith. Next thing, an immature faith is carried about by winds of doctrine. That's the next phrase in verse 15. So I thought about that this week. What's that talking about? Well, first of all, the word doctrine is not a word that just means like systematic theology. Don't think that. It's a Greek word that just means teaching. So it's you're tossed about by the, by the winds of teachings, the winds of thinking, by the different cultural ideas of what's right, what's wrong, and, and how it changes so often from generation to generation and from time to time and region to region. And, and we're just kind of tossed about, carried about by whatever wind of recent thought is popular. So I thought, is this ever happened? Do we have a faith that's always changing? And, and I think what I find is, yeah, I, you know, and it's so easy, it's so subtle. I mean, who, for example, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? We would say Jesus was the God-man. He was God in human flesh. Um, a lot of churches, a lot of pastors these days don't really believe that. A lot of people in our culture would not say Jesus was the God-man. Uh, they would say Jesus was a good man, but he's not God. So all they've done is add one letter. Add one letter and you go from Jesus the God-man to Jesus the good man. And I respect and love Jesus, but he's not my God. And all of a sudden, everything changes. People ask me sometimes, Dale, how do you know the Bible is true? I could give you about ten reasons why I believe there's evidence for the Bible being inspired by God. But I will tell you that the number one reason that I believe it was because Jesus believed it and declared it. And Jesus rose from the dead. And guys who can raise from the dead get higher points than other guys in my theology. It's like guys who like used to live in heaven, came to earth, went back. They know more about heaven than guys who just write books and philosophize and guess what God might be like. Develop theories about what God might be like. Take surveys about what God might be like. If you want to know what God's like, you listen to a guy that first hung out in heaven, came to earth, all kinds of evidence in history for his resurrection. And Jesus said, Jesus quoted the Bible directly 93 times when answering questions. Questions about life, questions about sexuality, questions about sin, questions about hope and forgiveness, questions about heaven and hell and eternity. All of that, Jesus would quote the Bible. There's evidence So the reality is we need to be anchored in who Jesus is. It leads us to what is the Bible? Is it the Word of God or does it just contain good thoughts about God? 
See, a lot of people in our culture would tell you, no, the Bible is just kind of an ancient book that's a, a mixture of some kind of cool ideas, kind of inspiring ideas, and then it's probably got some out-of-date wrong ideas, and you have to decide what's out-of-date, what's wrong, and what you believe and what you don't believe. That's the way the culture, that's the winds of doctrine about the Bible. What do you believe? What do you believe? See, if we're going to be strong, a redwood faith is rooted not in the changing thoughts of our culture. Because one generation will say it this way and then they'll change their mind the next generation. It's always changing. And it changes the most where? It changes the most on the areas that the culture kind of feels a little challenged in, such as our approach to sexuality, such as our approach to marriage and family. Now, let me give you a really old-fashioned idea. And that is that it's really healthy for people to be attracted to the opposite sex. God loves romance. He invented it. He invented the hormones that drive it. And they're, and they're not the result of sin. Adam and Eve had them. That's why Adam looked at Eve and said, wow. He didn't go, hmm. Okay. He went, wow. You know, because he had God-given, sanctified, God-designed uh, interest and expectation and excitement over the opposite sex. That's good. And, and then God had this great idea that to really make culture and life flow better, you should prayerfully find someone that you might say, I will commit myself to that person for life. And after you make that commitment, a covenant for life to till death do us part, and you make that type of a love covenant commitment, in that context, you now have freedom to give your body away to each other and develop a great sexual relationship for the rest of your life and enjoy it and develop it. And, and, and then you can have children too and not feel any problems there and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, then, and, and generation after generation can be healthy. Now, our generation doesn't do it that way. And I understand that. And many of you in this room, because you're a product of this generation, you've not done it that way. So can I just say, I know that, and I'm okay with that, and God's okay with that, but God wants you to realize, yeah, you took the wrong path. But God still loves you. That's why we have grace. But, but in our culture today, uh, my view that you kind of you know, you date, you love, you stay a virgin. That's a good word in my vocabulary, not a weird one. And you do it until you have that covenant commitment for life. And then you have the joy of giving away your body for the joy and pleasure of someone else and enjoying one another. And you, and you do that and you can have that the rest of your life. That's how Becky and I did it. And, and, and I went to a major university. And yes, my, my roommate had a whole trunk load of his collection of Playboy, which was back then, that was the only version of internet pornography. Now it's like on every cell phone. So, you know, but back then, you know, he was a collector, okay? So he's my roommate. I'm sharing Jesus with him, you know, but, you know, yeah, I grew up in that. I didn't grow up in some prudish little protected place away from the world. But I thank God that Becky and I were taught early in life that, you know, this is a healthy way to approach relationships. So we did that. Now, today it's different. So I'm watching NBC News and Carson Daly. I kind of like Carson Daly. He's kind of wacky. He has a great late, late night thing with some cool music venues that he goes to and all that stuff. Some of you won't like the music, so don't go there if you're going to get mad at me. But, but I kind of like Carson Daly. He's kind of a cool guy and he's in touch with the culture. And he's on NBC in the morning now and he just celebrated his new marriage in 2015. 
And I'm excited for Carson. I kind of like him. But it was interesting the way it went down. Carson got married. They showed pictures on the, on the morning news and congratulated him with his co-hosts. And this is what they said. You know, the, you know, Carson said, yeah, we finally decided it was time. The time was right for us to get married. And then he said this. As a Catholic and as a Christian, I realize that I kind of did this in reverse. And um, they said, what do you mean? He says, well, I realize that, you know, you know we've been together now since uh, for a while. He actually has three children. He has three children with this gal. And uh, so we moved in together. Uh, we start sleeping together. We move in together. We have three children together. Now we get married. He says, I realize kind of, it's kind of in reverse. But for us, you know, we're happy. And the other co-host said, you know, Carson, don't worry. About, you shouldn't worry about that. It's kind of the new normal, isn't it? And everybody on the panel kind of said, yeah, it's the new normal. Now, for some of you in this room, this is your normal. Hear me clearly. I love you. God loves you. But I love you enough to tell you the truth when the culture won't do it. George, was it MIT or Harvard that did the study on cohabitation? George Hahn. That's what I thought. Thank you. Georgia told me this years ago. Harvard, Yale, and University of Chicago did a big study on does it increase your odds of having a better marriage, a better sexual relationship, a better lifelong marriage? Does it increase your odds if you first move in together and try the other person out for a while before you get married? And the, the results of the study was a clear no. This is not Liberty Bible College doing the study. It's Harvard, Yale, University of Chicago. And much to their surprise, they found that, wow, the Christian formula actually increases your odds for a lifelong, meaningful, joyful, wonderful relationship that works. Wow, what do you know? See, when you are rooted in a tree that's thousands of years old, in fact, goes back to creation, that's where you want to be rooted in life, not the winds of change of cultural thinking. Number four, so where's these winds of change come from? Well, look at verse 15 again. It comes from the trickery of men. It comes from craftiness, deceitfulness. In other words, this is a faith that's easily fooled. It's rooted in man's ideas instead of God's revelation. It's driven by deception. And, and so you should expect false teaching if it's going to be deception, deceptive, it's got to look good. It's got to sound good. And that's why so often when we as Christians believe something that kind of rums, comes up, bumps up against the culture, expect the culture's explanation to sound convincing. But it's deceitful. They don't tell you the research. You don't see this study by Harvard, Yale, University of Chicago being splashed across the media wow guess what we just learned that we were all wrong the sexual revolution is screwing people up and wrecking lives and we want to get the word out so nbc cnn and you know msnbc and everybody's got to get the word out because we're messing up our culture which is why crime is up divorce is up the abuse of women is up all the other nasty things it goes back to the decay of our culture so let's get the word out you're not going to hear it because the culture buys into an idea where they want every person to simply have moral freedom, not moral truth. 
So hear me clear. I'm not teaching you this because I don't like you. I'm actually teaching you this because, wow, surprise. So this is why the passage begins with this big warning. Don't have a childish, immature faith that is like a child, immature, upset every time something goes wrong, storms of life, always changing, depending on the winds of cultural thinking, and it's really listening to the trickery of human beings instead of going back to be rooted into, into the divine revelation of God. So what's the solution? This is a big problem. <clears throat> I love the fact that in the next five minutes I give you the solution. The solution begins in verse 15, but, contrast, but speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is our head, Christ. I love that. Three key phrases. Number one, speaking truth in love. In other words, that's a faith that's grounded now in the word of God. It's grounded in the roots of of, a, of the mother tree that goes back over 2,000 years, over 4,000 years, it's given to us by God and it never goes out of date. So suck truth from the mother tree of God's Word. That's my metaphor. If you want to have a redwood type of faith that grows really tall, really strong, survives everything, you got to do that. Speak truth in love. Number two, speak it in love. It needs to be delivered with gentleness and compassion. This is where the church has been weak for many years. Is the church often gives a very condemning, you know, they teach on a topic like I'm teaching on today and it's all about shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. You know, the reality is if I grew up in the same culture you've grown up in without the benefit of the teaching I had as a young teenager, I would have been sleeping with Becky if she hadn't, if she let me. And we would have moved in together and lived like every other young hippie in the 60s and been smoking whatever we wanted to smoke and doing what we wanted to do all in the name of free what? Love. Free love. I thank God that by His grace I learned another way. And I thank God that if I ever got tempted to violate that, Becky would slap the pee out of me. But anyway, here we go. Can you, I should never say that, but anyway. I don't have no other way to say it. And it's true. And she came close a couple times. But anyway, here we go. But you do it to move into Christ, to be growing to be like Jesus. I want to be growing to be like Jesus. So Jesus is our role model, not any thing rooted in this culture. And as we grow to be more like Jesus, wow. His love, His grace forgives us when we fail. And we have what this band talks about when they name themselves Second Chance. Growing to be like Christ. So we need to be in an environment where we are nourishing ourselves with truth, but it's delivered in love. So I, I really pray, one of my goals in every single sermon is that when you listen, you can sense truth but also you need to be able to sense that when ryan and i speak to you that we love you because if you sense i'm just up here to condemn and bash you that's not my heart got it and if you ever sense that dale that didn't feel like you love me tell me out in the plaza and i'll say i'm sorry truth delivered in love is a powerful thing 
So where do you get truth delivered in love? That's the third part, verse 16. Listen to it. You get it when you're loving one another toward maturity. See, that's the relationship side. Look at verse 16. He says, and from whom, he says, and from whom the whole body, the whole church, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, it causes the growth of the body, that is the church of Christians, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I love that. Here it is. The key passage is, it's according to the proper working of each individual part. Meaning, you, are, you need to be both connected and contributing. That as a church family, as Ryan taught last week, every part of the family is important. Every part of the family has something to contribute. And you're all different. But that's the cool part. As you contribute out of the strengths God's given you, giving truth and love to one another, helping each other work through our struggles and our temptations and our failures and being reminded of His grace and all that good stuff. As we do that with one another, and some people like Doris at age 93 is still holding your babies. And I ask each of us, where are you serving in the church? Yeah, but Dale, I don't have the energy I used to have. Then just step up and be Doris at age 93. Because she doesn't want to stop serving Jesus. So she helps with babies at Mops and in the nursery with Kitsy. Right, Kitsy? And at Ocean Knoll. See, that's the spirit. See, everyone's got a gift. Her gift is loving on babies. So she does it three times a week. Wow. See, at 93, I just hope I can still get out of bed. But the question is, what are you doing? So when you pull all this together, because I like short summaries, here it is. This passage is teaching me several things. You are needy. All of us need others to be growing. It's the, it's, as each part is interconnected, doing their part, causes the growth of the body of Christ in love. You get more and more of these redwood Christians because Redwood Christians are not just off by themselves trying to grow. They have their roots interconnected with other Christians and their roots are all interconnected with the mother tree, which in my story today is Jesus. It goes back even longer than 2,000 years. You are needy and you are needed. You are unique. That's cool. So, by the way, quit judging each other when other people don't approach the faith exactly like you. We have different paths towards spiritual growth. Some of us like to journal. Others have never had a journal. Uh, some of us love to spend time alone with God in the woods. Others want to be together with a group of other Christians with a hammer building something for Jesus. And, and there's different ways in which your spiritual gifts have shaped you and in which you grow. Respect one another's differences and celebrate your uniqueness. Realize we all have a mission. This passage says it's for the growth of the body and the building up of itself in love, verse 16. So we have a purpose behind what we do. In other words, we must love to grow and we must grow to love. We must love to grow spiritually. We don't want to stay babies. We want to grow up. And to do that, we must grow in how we love. 
This passage begins and ends with speaking the truth in love that you might grow up to the building up of the body in love. Love is like the bookends of what God wants us to be as a church. Strong together. Strong together. If you're not connected, I encourage you to sign up for Rooted. You can take out your card and just write the word Rooted. I want to start next week. Um, come to the 9 o'clock worship so you can get in on it and go to Rooted at 1045 upstairs. We need to know you're coming so we have enough books. So sign up if you want to come to Rooted because guess what? Rooted will root you like a redwood. So you begin to grow up. If you've already been through Rooted and you want to connect elsewhere, just write life groups. I want to get in a life group. I want to begin to serve. These are ways that you connect to the mother tree and to one another that we might grow up together in love. Strong together. Say it one more time with me. Think about it. Duco maison yay. Ready? Duco maison yay. One more. Duco maison yay. Father God, help us to be a church that celebrates strength together helps each other grow, loves one another toward maturity, that we might live to build uh, followers of Jesus with a redwood kind of faith. And Father, I pray that even as we worship with a couple final songs, that uh, even as we give to you, use our giving to stretch our faith and to express our faith and to express our love for you. It's our honor to do so. In Christ's name, amen.